be a gift. And almost not proper for me to, to separate those so much because even in what we do physically, there's a, a spiritual God element in that. But there are dimensions to our lives that are invisible and untouchable. And they're just as real to us as the things that we can see and touch and handle. If we're Christians, we're informed by something more than just the natural realm in which we you know, touch things and taste things and we can see things. And this is a world that's created a storyline that says that part of your existence is the only part that matters. That's what you need to focus on. It's what you need to be concerned about. But the Bible takes us behind the scenes over and over again and lets us see things that are just as real as what you can taste and touch and experience with your senses. And when you go out your front door to go live your life this week, you're, you're going to do physical things, and right along with those physical things, there's going to be a spiritual dimension to them. So... Uh, if you're a young person here and you, and you go to school this week, you know, there's books and there's getting to class and there's sitting in a classroom, but there's a spiritual dimension to that aspect of your life as well. If you relate to somebody in your own household, it's your husband, your wife, your children, there's a physical dimension to that. There's a spiritual dimension to that as well. There's money sitting in your pocket right now. There's probably not. Probably no one has cash on them, actually. But there's money sitting somewhere that has your name on it. There's a physical dimension of that, right? There's handling of it. There's earning it by activity that you do. There's storing it and thinking and using it a certain way. There's a spiritual dimension to that as well. So you and I live in this realm where we are doing physical life and spiritual life simultaneously together. Are you with me in that we don't always pay attention to both dimensions, right? Sometimes we can go one or the other. And quite honestly, I think today it's more frequently that we just go into the physical dimensions of our lives and neglect the spiritual elements. But this story here helps us, right? Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. And I'm going to go back into this story. Peter covered it last week uh, as well. And sometimes we just visit verses that there's, there's stuff that we just can't pass up. We're always passing something up, quite honestly, but, but I just couldn't pass this up. Uh, if you weren't here last week, Peter brought us into the realm of this reality. Every one of us, like these folks who have been rescued out of Egypt, they've, they've ventured five weeks, maybe six weeks, into the wilderness. So they're into their sixth week of journeying with God, and they get attacked. And Peter really helped us last week to realize the normalcy of conflict in our lives, the mechanics of it. What do we do when conflict comes to us? These Amalekites are going to attack the people of God. We're going to get attacked. And how do we respond? And what's the, the mechanisms for us to engage this warfare? Well, that's where Peter went last week. It was extremely helpful. If you weren't here, please download that or listen to it on the podcast. Verse 8 in Exodus chapter 17, let's read this together. It says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. 
So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Well, Lord, we thank you that this is a living word. This is a hand-selected by God living word. Lord, there are so many stories that things happened in the past in people's lives that belong to you that, Lord, we don't even know about them. We don't know everything that's ever happened. But, Lord, we know some things that have happened because you handpicked these stories. So, Lord, this is a word for us, it comes to us to instruct us, to open our hearts to the realities of life with you and in this world. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as we visit some of these passages, there are strange details in them, right? And you really catch that when you realize there are summary elements that you're reading through the Bible, and there's a brief summary. You're going to find lots of battles in Scripture. Right? There's, there's moments when the people of God go off to war, and all you get to hear about is they went off to war, and God's hand was favorable to them, and they overcame the enemy. And that's it. That's all you get. And then you get this one that gives you these strange details. These are strange details to me. And they kind of inform us about some things that God does behind the scenes that obviously God said, you know what, I want you to be aware, not just of what's going on that you can see, but what's going on that you can't see. Some things that you might not see have any impact on the outcome of this moment that actually have the greatest impact on them, right? The title of the message is Wielding Swords, Raising Rods, and Trusting God. Let me start with in verse 8 here. We're just going to walk slowly through the passage and pick up some ideas that are here. Then Amalek came and fought. Then at this particular moment, right? You start this section highlighting the word then. So there's something going on here that spurs the next thought. The connection point in this passage is it's rooted in whatever just happened before it. Well, what just happened before it? Well, we know the, the story that they were complaining because they didn't have water and there was issues there of, of thirst going on in their lives. God gave instruction to Moses as to how he'd meet the need, that you were to go over and strike the rock, and out of this rock would flow water, and that their need would be met. But verse 7 lands in this story and summarizes it a bit, and then it produces this word then. It says, verse 7, back up. It says, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. 
because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is, is the Lord among us or not? All right, so what's interesting here is you have this wonderful story. A need gets met miraculously by God. This rock gets struck. Water flows out of it. Everybody's seen a miracle. Their hearts are enlarged. Their need is met. End on a high note, will you? And then you go to verse 7, and it ends not on a high note. It ends on highlighting this attitude that was among the people of God, that they end up naming this place, this memorial for this location, is Massa and Meribah, quarreling and testing. Let's remember that, people of God. We pass by this place right here. Yeah, that was Massa and Meribah. Remember that day? That was a day that we quarreled with God. That was a day that we tested him. That was a day that in spite of all that God had been doing in our midst, and we were just six weeks out from the starting block of incredible miracles, we were still saying, is God among us or not? Remember that day? That's where this thing ends. And then the word then comes. Then Amalek fought against them. And it's interesting, Charles Spurgeon, I'm going to get a lot of help from Charles Spurgeon today. If you don't know who Charles Spurgeon is, I want to ask you for a show of hands, but if you don't know who Charles Spurgeon is, you need to find out who Charles Spurgeon is, right? Charles was an incredible pastor, uh, late 1800s in England. Uh, church had an impact all over the world. Probably no one's material has been more published around the world than his has been through the years. But Charles had some thoughts in this passage I thought were very helpful. He says, on the one hand, notice that this attack upon Israel was Amalek's great sin on account of which the nation was doomed to be extirpated. Because of this, God said, I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. But on the other hand, this assault was the result of Israel's sin. For it is significant it is significantly put after the strife of Massa and Meribah. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. The point is this, persecution may come to you from evil men, distinctly from them. And it may be their wicked free will which makes them assail you. But at the same time, it may be your sin which lies at the bottom of it. And because you have erred, they have been permitted and even appointed to bring trouble upon you. All right, I'm, I'm going down this street very carefully, and, and I want you to put a leash on, all right? Kind of tether yourself for the sake of safety. You know, like when you climb the edge of a mountain here, you want to be tethered to something that's so, just in case you slip, all right, the rope's going to catch you. All right, if, if a thought is going to get installed here that sounds like this, here are the people of God, they're walking along, they're doing life, doing life. When they sin the Amaleks come. When they sin, the Amaleks come. When they sin, the Amaleks come. All right, now if we're going to get install that this morning, we're going to be on some dangerous ground. And our tendency will be, because we're going to try to apply this, is, well, so, so Keith, are you saying that, that if trouble comes to my life, if difficulty shows up in my life, if opposition shows up in my life, if affliction shows up in my life, I, I just need to stop for a moment and gaze into the rearview mirror and go, what did I do to cause this? All right, now, 
40% of the room is wired that way. You do that already. You don't need any help from me to do that. You visit your life with, what did I do to cause this? I guess I've fallen short again. And then there's probably not a 60%, maybe just a 30% of in the room that you never really think about what you do. Because you just live in life, you're just doing life. Stuff happens, there are rock slides all around you. You just keep going. It's like, I don't know what caused that. I don't know what caused that. It's, it's not good to land in either camp and, and set up your address there. Because the Bible doesn't do that. And one of the ways in which we want to learn to read the Bible over the years is to not let one passage be the only passage informing our theology. Right? One of the things I love about was uh, systematic theology, which, by the way, I think is why Reformed theology is a better theology than whatever other theology is out there, is because Reformed theology wrestles with systematic theology. Reformed theology stands in this verse right here and says, hey, like it or not, that's what that verse says. But that verse over there says something we've got to make sure we understand too while we try to understand this one. Right? That's just a healthy way to read the Bible. So when we come to this passage, you, you, you can't form your theology that says, all right, so every time we screw up and get a bad attitude, Amaleks are going to show up. So if I look on the landscape and I see Amaleks in my life, oh, and this even is more fun if I'm sitting in a small group meeting and I, and I look in your life and I see some Amaleks showing up. Well, brother, what is it that you've been doing lately that's caused all this? You know, that's really helpful and encouraging in moments, isn't it? Your life is unraveling, it's full of pain, and somebody's there to inform you that, well, you're the cause of this. You know, you created this. Uh, listen, do you know how many times in Scripture God's people did stupid things and God did not allow their consequences to touch them? And do you know how many times God did something incredibly, miraculously merciful right after they did something stupid? All right, so, so don't create this. You know, don't, don't turn into Job's counselors. Remember his friends? They're only default setting. And be careful because I see this in the body of Christ. I won't, I won't point you out this morning, but I see this in the body of Christ. That our default setting is Job's counselors. And so we stand in somebody's need and something, man, like Job, one thing after another. It's like, man, how many, how many bad luck days can this guy have in a row? I mean, God's got to be against this man. He's got to be. Look at what's going on in his life. And, but, you know, remember, God peels back Job's story. And what they had operating in them theologically, God shows us that that was not the case. As a matter of fact, you can't find another human being on the planet with a better resume than Job. If there was ever a day that somebody didn't drive his life into the ditch, it was Job. And yet there was never another person that I can think of recorded in Scripture who seemed to have so much go against him. So just be careful in that. But having said that, to be careful, don't swing the pendulum in the other direction and say, okay, so basically then, it doesn't matter what I've done recently. It doesn't matter what patterns are in my life. It doesn't matter what decisions I've made. God's never responding to that. God's never bringing any form of discipline or consequences into my life. Okay, you would be just as wrong to land there. Because the, the Bible clearly says God, like a father, disciplines his children. As a matter of fact, he says if you're not being disciplined by God, you're not his child. 
So if there aren't moments where God steps in and says, you know what, I'm really not interested in you doing that one more time. So let's, let's see. Amalek, you know, if that, it, well, God would never do that. Well, okay, God does that. Right, I think Spurgeon's maybe on the edge of knowing for sure whether that's what's going on here or not. The Bible doesn't really come out and say this, but it does elsewhere in many places. Right, Charles goes on and says, Israel quarreled with God, and now Amalek quarrels with Israel. They put a question about God. Is the Lord among us or not? A horrible question, since it involved a doubt as to the veracity of Moses and as to the reality of all the great wonders which were worked in Egypt and in the wilderness. Moreover, we find that Israel had utterly had uttered threats against Moses so, so that he said, they are almost ready to stone me. Now, if they would stone the man of God, is it at all amazing that the men of the world were ready to kill them? If you go against Moses, God will send Amalek against you. For remember that God chastens his people. Though he forgives, he chastens. I don't know if there's a sin in our lives that we give greater permission to than fear and doubt. I mean, it's so human, isn't it? And it is. And I've experienced lots of both. There's, there's something about being a limited human being. We don't have knowledge beyond, you know, just today, what's going on right now. We've got some history. But I, we don't know the future. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. And the fact of that introduces me to apprehension and fear. And, and what's going to happen when something really strong shows up in my life and it's big and it's powerful and it's threatening and it's active? Well, you know, it's almost like it's, it's understandable that I would respond with doubt. I'm a limited creature with limited resources, limited ability, limited intelligence. I think we can make a mistake, though, to over-accommodate fear and doubt in our lives. Charles Spurgeon uses a word here. I think it's an appropriate word. He uses the word horrible. Right, some of us hang that word horrible on adultery some scandalous lies and cover-up took place. Those horrible sins. I don't know if we use the word horrible to describe doubt and fear. But to God, it's horrible. I mean, do you understand what's at the heart of doubt? At the heart of doubt for a Christian is to look at a circumstance to define its details, the power that it has, the impact it could have, where this might go, how it might destroy something in my life, how it might ruin my future, is, is to look at all that, gather it all together, and then to bring it in the presence of God and still be afraid of it. For the Christian, that's horrible. Do you get any sense of how insulting that is to God? Because you think that thing's more powerful than God. You think that thing has more control over your future than God does. You think that thing is writing the script 
for my life tomorrow and the next day and those that I love more than God is. We all get together and we say, oh, I understand your doubt and I understand your fear. And I, I, unfortunately, I do. But for God, it's an insult. It is standing in the presence of God and acting as though whatever power God's got, it can't handle this power. Whatever management God is doing in the universe, he obviously didn't realize this thing would be managing one day and displacing him. Whatever faithfulness we have ever accredited to God, we count this thing more faithful. At the end of the run, this thing will be more faithful in my life than God will be. That's what doubt is saying. Doubt is an insult to God. And doubt is powerful. Right? When doubt gets working in us, because doubt almost always, I don't know if we're ever experiencing doubt without experiencing fear. And so doubt gets working in us and Next thing you know, doubt starts to attack people, right? When doubt and fear get moving in our lives, all of a sudden Moses now is under attack. The people that in any way represent God now are under attack. Listen, this, this could be all kinds of people in our lives. For them, it was, it was Moses. And what's amazing is we feel justified in our attack, you know, after all that's going on, after all I've been through, do you know how long this situation's been doing this? Do you know how many times he has done this, right? We defend, we're angry, and we feel justified in our anger, and we defend it, and we bring the resume with us to the person that we're trying to explain why it is that we're attacking our husband or our situation or whatever it is. We feel like we're right in this, but we're not right. It's a horrible thing that we do. Could it be so horrible that God says, the Amalekites are going to step in and and address some of this? You know, I'm anticipating lots of men here this morning. You know, this is an atmosphere, and I I want to call us as men to own the responsibility for the atmosphere that we create, right? Your, Your home has an atmosphere. You have an atmosphere, right? Somebody comes into your presence, there's an atmosphere around you, right? So this is an atmosphere that got created. And this is not the first time, and it won't be the last time. It is an atmosphere of complaint. It's an atmosphere of negativity. It's an atmosphere that doesn't see God and doesn't anticipate good. Okay, so These guys are creating this atmosphere, right? Some of us need to, to get in touch with the atmosphere that we create, There are some men who you don't hear much from in their lives unless it sounds like some kind of a cross between, you know, Ralph Cramden and Archie Bunker. You remember those guys? I know I'm dating myself. Some of you guys are going, who the heck are they? I can't think of modern guys. I I don't watch enough TV to see guys like them. But Ralph Cramden, Archie Bunker, when did you hear from those guys the most? It was when they had something to complain about. Their character came to life. Other than that, they were kind of quiet, barely interacting with the scene or with the people that are in the TV show. But when stuff got crosshaired with them, when life became irritating, Ralph comes to life, right? I mean, that's what he does. And Archie Bunker, that's when he is at his finest, 
He's finally irritated enough. So there's this atmosphere that we create. Gentlemen, I, I, there's too many men like this. Like we just kind of sit around like lumps. We don't have much to say about much until life becomes irritating. And then you hear from us. And we just stir up this atmosphere of complaint, unbelief, and negativity. Listen, can, can you visit this story and recognize God treats that like it's horrible. It's horrible what you're creating, this kind of an atmosphere around you. And, and listen, I know we're coming out of this story. This, there's a great story right before it, right? I mean, they're, they're complaining before. They don't have, they're, they're thirsty. They're, they're in the desert. They're, they're six weeks out. There's no water in sight. We're desperate. And God in his mercy steps in. They strike the rock and water flows everywhere. Complaining one moment ago, need being met in the next. Bad attitude, right? Because they're, you know, they're about to stone Moses over the thirst issue. So they're, they're coming to blows here. And God still meets their need. God is still merciful to them. All right, be careful that you don't install that as the default setting either. That you don't believe that, well, well, that's how God is. You see, every time you cross hairs with God, every time you express your doubt and your unbelief in his presence, he will just meet you with mercy. You, you do know the story is going to go on, right? Or this is week number six, right? If we fast forward a little bit, there's this golden calf that's going to get created in a few chapters. Does anybody remember how God responds to the golden calf? Mercy, water flowing from rocks, more gold, I don't know. A plague breaks out among the people. The people who had lost their confidence in God transferred it to an Egyptian idol for their hope to be found there, and God met them with a plague. They're going to get a little bit farther up the road, and they're going to keep on complaining in numbers, right? I mean, if you, if you fast forward through this, and we're actually going to do something with this as we get to the end of Exodus, so you can kind of see how the rest of the Old Testament lays out from this moment on. But, but numbers is right on the heels of Exodus. It's events that happen right after Exodus. And so you're going to get another complaint is going to break out, and they're going to complain yet again. And God's just not going to mercifully respond. He, his fire from heaven is going to come down and consume the edges of the camp and people are going to get burned up. That's going to happen. These people who continue to doubt and doubt and doubt and doubt, and that's what they did. They walked with God and they got tested and they doubted. And they walked with God and they got tested and they doubted. And they did that. And they get to the edge of the promised land. And this promise that God has made that I'm going to give you this land, it's a good land. And they send spies and the spies come back the spies come back, by the way, full of faith, but with a report that this is going to be hard. There are issues in this land. All the people hear another reason to doubt, so they doubt yet again. You know what God does? He says, you're not going in. You're not going to go in. And they kind of sobered up in that moment and said, oh, well, maybe we, maybe we, okay, God, no, God, we want to go in. We, we can go in. We can do it. And God says, no, you can't. No, 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 God, we want to go now. Right? You ever do this with your kids? 
right? They, now they're in agreement with you and you don't agree with them anymore. <laughs> like this is a limited time offer. Nope, we're not doing it now. We're not going to Disney World. What? No, I, no, no, I'll do it. You know, well, that's kind of Israel here. They're ready to go in no matter what now. And God sticks to his guns. And he says, you're not going in. And so, you know, they think, well, let's just go in anyway. God will just come with us. And guess what? They go in and God doesn't go with them. And you know who they bump into? Amalek. They bump into the Amalekites again, and they lose this time. And God says, this generation, you're going to wander in the wilderness until you all die off. And then the generation after you, they will go in and inherit the land. Okay, this, this, that's just in the Bible, right? That's just, this is just God. So, you know, don't create these default settings that don't get informed by other places in scriptures. And, and men in particular, do be aware that God is not okay with our complaining. And I, I need to hear that. Because I can complain. And I, I may not be an Archie Bunker yelling loud complainer, but I can be a complainer. I can complain in other ways. I can grumble and have doubt operating in my outlook on things. And God is not pleased. Do not make room for that. At some point, you may have Amalekites knocking at your door. And in the mercy and love of God, he's trying to deal with that. Look in verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight. Choose for us men. I just want to highlight. These are just interesting little story items here for me that are in this passage. Right, warfare comes to God's people. You know what Moses doesn't say to Joshua? He says, Joshua, get all the men together and go out to battle. He doesn't say that. He says, choose men. Which means he's going to choose some, and he's not going to choose others. Well, how is, how is that fair? Well, you know, you're going to find this in Scripture. Right? We're going we're to see it in the next chapter, in chapter 18. That, that there are times in which God is looking to move and God is looking for leaders and God is looking for people who are going to put their hands to things and he chooses some and not others. And that's what happens right here. And it's going to happen all throughout Scripture. Right? In Acts chapter 6, you get into the New Testament, you still find this principle of choose some but not others. There's a day in the move of God's church in Acts chapter 6. God's breaking out in Jerusalem. There's this revival happening. All these people are coming into the kingdom. There's a need everywhere for care to be given, for leadership to be given. And so the apostles choose people. They tell the people, you choose from among yourselves, men full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. Don't choose them if they're not that. Same thing's going to happen in the next chapter. Same thing will happen in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where elders are called to meet qualifications. It's not just a, hey, anybody and everybody, whatever. There is a, a choose dimension here. Spurgeon says, observe how Moses prepared to fight the Amalekites. He said to Joshua, choose us out men. He did not lose sight of the necessity of having the most fit warriors because his trust was in God. If someone, seeing only one side of the question, had come to him and said, the battle is the Lord's. Why do you want to pick out men 
Will not one man do as well as another? Moses would probably have, re have replied, these Amalekites are mighty warriors. Take chosen men, men that are able-bodied, men that are expert in war, the choicest men you can find, and go to war with Amalek. We shall need our best men to overcome such a foe. Choose us out men. This is a rule without exception when you go to work for Christ. Bring forth the best of everything that you have, your best thought, your best knowledge, your best ability. Let the church always see to it that she tries to get the best men she can to fight the battles of the Lord. It is a mistake to suppose that just anybody will do for Christian work. You know, this was not a day that was scripted for them. So at some point, without any notice, the people of God traveled to a destination where suddenly, as Peter shared last week, the normalcy of conflict erupts. It just comes out of nowhere. There wasn't signs along the way, Amalekites 200 miles, Amalekites 100 miles, conflict coming. You know, there's no notice. It's next day we've got to go to war. Joshua, choose men. Men who don't have time to get prepared now. These men need to be prepared already because the battle is upon us. So, you know, we live as a people traveling on a journey together as well. We travel as, you know, God puts people in churches for a purpose, that we might travel in his purpose together. And at some point, Amalekites are coming. They're already here in many ways. And in that moment, men need to be chosen. And that's not the moment to all of a sudden decide, oh, I guess I, I never thought about being a man of God, but I guess this will be a good time. No, no, the battle is tomorrow. How much of your Bible do you think you can read by tomorrow? You gonna, you gonna learn to pray between now and then? How many apologetic answers do you think you can cram in your head in 24 hours? Men need to be ready to be chosen to go to war. You know what's interesting here is Charles Spurgeon, you know, theologically, I know sometimes folks don't understand theological camps real well, but uh, Charles Spurgeon would have been reformed in his theology. Charles Spurgeon would have called himself a Calvinist. I use that term carefully because most folks really don't understand Calvinism, even if they think they do. But Spurgeon is a man who would have believed in Calvinism, yet you read in these passages, he's a man who believes in methods. He believes in activity. He believes it's not okay to stand and say, well, the battle is the Lord's. God is sovereign. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. No, no, no. He recognizes choice men, men who can fight. It matters whether these men can take the field and fight, Joshua. It doesn't just matter if anybody goes. It matters if the right people go. Joshua, be careful who you pick. And so this is where I think, you know, systematic theology has you understanding that God is sovereign over all things and it also matters what you do. They're both true. And he highlights that. Look in verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Joshua fought, Moses went up the hill. Joshua fought, Moses went up the hill. Right here are these little curious details. Why doesn't everybody go out and fight? Right? Moses, what's your problem? 
What are you going to hide? Are you a wimp, Moses? Go out, get a sword with all the rest of the real men, and go shed some blood. <laughs> the real men are amen in that. That's right. It's this wimpy stuff going up to the hill. Do you think you're at the opera? You're going to sit down and watch through some glasses? Well, in God's plan, fighting spiritual battles takes a physical dimension and it takes a spiritual dimension. So it might make sense that how many Amalekites are going to... A lot, a lot. We're going to need a lot. We can't spare anybody. Nobody goes up the hill this time. Everybody grab a sword. A lot of Amalekites, we, we need to fight... No, there was a physical dimension in this battle, and there was a spiritual dimension in this battle, and you cannot neglect either one. Spurgeon says, prudence prays with Moses while it fights with Joshua. In like manner, in the activities of our holy faith, we must learn to balance work and worship, prayer for victory, and conflict with the enemy. In the case before us, we see that the means are not neglected. Moses did not call all the people to pray when it was time for fighting. He prayed, but at the same time, he set the battle in array. This is true wisdom, for faith without works is dead. We cannot expect to have souls saved if we pray and never preach. We cannot expect to have our children saved if we only pray for them night and morning. And never speak to them about eternal matters. And do not instruct them in the things of God. The means must not be neglected. If you're here and you're coming from theological studies that have made you criticize people who believe in Calvinistic doctrines, there's very few people who would pound you as hard on Calvinism as Charles Spurgeon would. He's the guy who just said, the means must not be neglected. But, you know, isn't God sovereign, though? Isn't he reigning over this battle in the valley with the Amalekites? Isn't he in charge of the end result coming out? Yes. And yet it matters whether there's a guy standing on the hill holding a rod up, and it matters whether there's a bunch of men swinging a sword. And it matters who those men are. And it matters whether the rod stays up or not. All these little strange details, they matter. Spurgeon goes on and says, but on the other hand, in this battle, reliance on God is not neglected. Moses ascends the hill holding up his banner. The banner is the rod of God and the banner bearer is the chosen servant of God. The meaning of it would be clear. Fight, but trust. War with Amalek with the edge of the sword, but prevail over Amalek by prevailing with God in prayer. You must have Joshua, and you must have Moses in the time of trial. Listen, we need both here. This little curious verse, this detailed little strange story highlights these elements. It's got this behind-the-scenes thing that it takes us to. So in this battle, there's going to be advance and there's going to be loss. They're going to prevail at some moments, and they're going to lose at other moments. That's probably true in all kinds of battles, right? All kinds of battles in Scripture had that, but we don't get a chance to go behind the scenes and see, well, why did they prevail at times, and why did they not prevail at other times? But in this story, we get a chance to see that, and God intentionally highlights it. Look at verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hand 
Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone, put it under him. He sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek. Right? What just gets featured there? One thing that's normal in our lives, normal, we've got, to, we've got to have a category for this, is when you and I encounter our Amaleks, when you and I go off to battle, there will be times when we are going to prevail, and there are going to be times when he is going to prevail. Whatever, whoever Amalek is, there are going to be times when you and I go to war and we are prevailing. And we are still on the battlefield. We're still in the plan of God when we are not prevailing. We are experiencing setbacks. Right? Setbacks can be very discouraging. Setbacks can be alarming, confusing, because we, we kind of don't know what to do with setbacks. Yeah, well, there are way too many people, way too many people that when they experience setbacks, you stop seeing them in your small group. You stop seeing them at church. Now listen, just don't like, well, you know, setbacks. Yeah, everybody experiences setback. Listen, you experience enough of a setback, it, it wants to unplug you. you. You are confused by it. You're disoriented by it. Your emotions are affected by it. At some point, you don't quite get how God can be for me and with me and in the battle with me, and I've just taken eight steps back running from an enemy who seems to have the upper hand right now. I don't get that. So it feels like disengaging makes sense in that moment. So you know, be aware of the temptation that when you experience setback, when your Christian life doesn't feel like a, a nice big adventure, when you open the Bible up and it feels like newspaper words that aren't leaping off the page and energizing your soul, when one event after another seems to be a negative event that seems to carry you farther away from something that feels like the promises of God, in that moment, you're not out of bounds. It's okay. Don't panic. And again, this is not the only passage that addresses this, but in this passage, setbacks get met by lifting the rod. There's a place in this battle that you and I are contending in that when we experience setbacks, don't withdraw from the things of God. Don't withdraw from the people of God. Press in even more with God's purposes. Raise the rod that Moses raises this rod in his trust before God in those moments. And he calls in reinforcements to help him with that. Beware of this. Fighting and advancement take intercession. And that's the, do you see that detail in this story? Down in the valley, if you took your camera and you only focused down in the valley, you'd just see men with swords fighting. You'd see them advancing, you'd be cheering on, you'd see them retreating, you'd be scratching your head, you'd see them advancing, you're cheering them on, you see them retreating, you're scratching your head. But if you pan back to where you can see up on the hill is Moses and he's lifting his rod in dependence upon God. And you notice that whenever he picks up the rod, there's an advance. And whenever he puts down the rod, there's a retreat. 
And whenever he picks it up again, I mean, this, can you imagine watching this happen? You're watching that, you're one. Those are related. <laughs> At the same time, simultaneously, what's taking place in the physical is related to what's taking place in the spirit. They're both going on at the same time. They can't be neglected. Both of them need to happen. But this is really interesting. It's a really interesting insight here. The guys on the hill get worn out before the guys in the battlefield do. Isn't that interesting? I mean, what the heck are they doing? Moses, what are you doing? You're holding up a stick. <laughs> really? These guys are down here running around on a battlefield, wielding swords, dodging blades and spears, and blood's gushing out all over the place. They're not worn out. You're worn out. Give me a break. Well, apparently, insight from this story, interceding can be harder work than the physical dimensions of what we do. Now, I don't know how you're wired. That might be a really helpful educational point because my tendency is to avoid the hard things. I don't mind doing the easy things. I mean, you can give me a whole list of easy things. I prefer a list of easy things, quite honestly. But if you give me hard things, you know, that's when whatever form of laziness exists inside of me makes its debut. Like, oh, I don't really think I, I don't really feel like doing that today. Can we just do that tomorrow? You know, I've been doing that. I'm really tired. And uh, Apparently, interceding is harder than wielding swords. Raising rods is harder than wielding swords. And it wears you out. Right? Spurgeon says, now this teaches that there must, there must be prayer as well as effort. Minister, preach on. You shall have no success unless you pray. If you do not know how to wrestle with God on your knees, you will find it hard to wrestle with men on your feet. You're not as likely to fail in your efforts as in your prayers. We never read that Joshua's hand was weary while wielding the sword, but Moses' hand was weary while holding the rod. Right, now, hey, this, this, this works great for me to hear this as a, as a pastor to realize, you know, I, I'm just loading you guys up with words unless the Spirit of God is moving in invisible ways and words are coming to life and hearts are being pierced, right? In the scriptures, there was preaching, there was pierced hearts. There was a Holy Spirit moment when words are being shared and an internal disturbance is happening, right? I mean, I've sat through the preaching of God's word and, and I've had the inside of me disturbed. Sort of like this internal alarm system going off saying you are standing in the wrong place. Keith, you are officially standing in the wrong move to the right. I'm like, well, I kind of like it here. Move to the right. And the guy keeps preaching. Uh, you are standing in the wrong place. Finally, a few minutes later, I kind of agree. I'm standing in the wrong place. Okay. Uh, move to the right. I, I kind of like it here. Uh, and then God uses preaching to change hearts. It's just words until the spirit, the invisible spirit of God is at work in the secret places of our lives, adjusting our willingness, our motivation, our decision-making equipment. God messes with it. Invisibly, somehow, God goes over there and reprograms things. And a heart like mine that was hell-bent sometimes on doing it this way and seeing it this way, all of a sudden, for reasons I can't explain, I'm suddenly willing to not see it that way. I'm suddenly willing to adjust. 
I, I suddenly have faith for something that before I was terrified to have faith for, but suddenly I do. What, what is that? Well, that's what the rod was doing. That rod being held up was accomplishing invisible things. I mean, it's a rod, right? I don't know, you know, I challenge any of the scientists here in the room to figure out what the heck was in that rod that was making that happen down there. Well, it was probably a magnetic rod. <laughs> a lot of magnetic ore in it. It's probably sucking the Amalekite swords right out of their hands. You know, there's no physical explanation for this. The guy lifts a rod. Right? There's no physical explanation for why you lift prayer to God and the earth takes shape and moves and things begin to happen differently. It's just what God does in this place called prayer. So listen, whether you're, whether you're preaching and needing God to move, or whether you're a, a mother or a grandmother here who's interacting with your children or your wayward children, your adult children, and you're trying to figure out what words can I say, what sword can I wield to convince them to do this differently, to take steps, to, to live their life differently. Well, listen, it, it may not be the sword at this moment. It may be the rod that you need. Follow it up with the sword. Remember, we don't get to become only sword people or only rod people. You're going to wield the sword at moments, and you're going to raise the rod at others. And then the whole time, you're going to trust God to do both. Listen, I know we become sword-only people. You know, we manipulate people with our words, don't we? It all becomes about my argument. It all becomes about my ability to pressure somebody, insult them, corner them, shame them. You know, I think when you, when, you, when you don't have much experience with the rod, man, you just swing that sword at everything. Right? So husbands and wives, you know, you just, you just get to place, you're just done with having this same old stinking argument. He is never going to change. And, and then you, you hear something that, ooh, that's good shame material. Huh, did you hear about so-and-so's husband? <laughs> he never speaks to his wife like that. And it's like, what, what are you doing there? Your, your, your only weapon is the sword, isn't it? And I'm going to use my words, and I'm going to corner you, and I'm going to manipulate you, and I'm going to force you to do what I want you to do. Listen, it's, it's interesting that there's, there's three people up on the hill, and I don't know how many, thousands, swinging swords. It's just very tempting for us to become one-dimensional. But this is a curious story, isn't it? At the end of the day, they're going to overcome the Amalekites. But they're going to overcome because they wielded swords and they raised the rod. They did both, and God calls us to do both. And when you've got to prop Moses up here, uh, there, there's an interesting insight there. Whatever you do, don't let that rod fall. Whatever you do, because we can take the field and we can swing the sword, but whatever you do, don't let the rod, send people up with him. That rod needs to stay up. Prop him up. Put his hands up. Listen, whatever you do, don't let your prayer life fall to the ground. Whatever you do, church, don't let the rod down. Whatever you do. Figure out something else you got to do in your life, but don't let the rod be the thing that you're like, hey, yeah, I feel like I'm going out every day. I got a sword in my hand. When was the last time the rod? Oh, the rod. I don't even know where I put the rod last. I mean, it's, when was the last time I prayed? I've, I think it's in a closet somewhere. I don't know, Keith. It's somewhere. Listen, you, you, you might 
be experiencing retreat and retreat and setback and setback because you can't find the rod. You have grown to depend upon your own efforts, your hard work, and good for you. I mean, hey, men, be hard workers. You want to provisionally go to work, be a hard worker, swing the sword. That's a good thing. But if you're only swinging the sword and you're never lifting the rod, you're in trouble. These guys overcome the Amalekites because they did both. They swung the sword and they lifted the rod in prayer. Now, let me just say this carefully before I bring us to this, to pray. You know, what's in this story as well is a faithfulness and an assuredness that we have. Because, one, this is a story that highlights human responsibility, it just does. Right? It matters that Moses is doing what he's doing. It matters that Joshua is doing what he's doing. So that translates to us, it matters that we do what we're doing. It matters that you pick a sword up and you go do what God's called you to do in your life. It matters that you pick a rod up and you pray. But, you know, behind those scenes, there, there is a Savior who operates in these two categories. And he never does it wrong. And he never neglects either one. Right, Moses is the intercessor, but the scriptures say that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. There, there we are in the battlefield of life and, and pan back and see in the heavens there, there is a savior on a hill who lifts the rod on our behalf and he never sets it down. Oh, and by the way, there's no Aaron or her to help him. He doesn't need any help from them. He is the perfect intercessor. He, he doesn't sleep or slumber. He never tires. He doesn't grow weak. He is faithfully, every day, every moment, interceding on our behalf. And then there's Joshua, right? Remember, Joshua is a foreshadowing of Christ. Yeshua, the God who saves. The captain who takes this sword-wielding group of men out into battle, and they follow this Joshua. Well, you know who our captain is, who wields the sword, the captain of the Lord of hosts is Jesus himself who goes into battle on our behalf and he stands in that battlefield with us with his own sword and he never fails. Listen, ultimately our lives are in the hands of a savior who ever lives to make intercession for us and who takes the field in battle and wields the sword against our enemies. So we have great hope not in ourselves here. Now, now, please don't do this. Please don't say, well, if Jesus has got it covered, I don't need to pray, and I don't need to take up the sword. That's not in this story. Where are you getting that from? In this story, people wield swords. People wield swords. But the confidence to wield the sword is because the captain's wielding the sword. And the confidence for our success is because he ever lives to make intercession for us. Therefore, we intercede as well, and God calls us to that. Now listen, let me, let me dial into our Amalekites here for a moment. Now I want to call us to pray in just a minute. I want to call us to pray this way. I think every person is going to be called at points to wield the sword and to raise the rod. So I think that's everybody has got that issue. But I want to land in this place this morning. I want to prepare you to be able to pray in just a moment. Wielding the sword, that, that's, that's about doing something, Right? These guys are wielding the sword. They're, they're actually out doing something. There's some things that God calls us to do when the Amalekites come to us. 
And then raising the rod is about interceding and looking to God and depending upon God and declaring our dependency upon God and interceding for those who are raising the sword. Well, this morning, maybe, maybe there's some here this morning that, that you, you need to do something, right? You, there's, there's Amalekites in your life that you need to pick a sword up and swing it at them violently like it matters. And there are some of us here who will like to pray for you as you feel God leading you to do that. So consider these Amalekites that may be in your life. Personal Amalekites. I think I listed these in your life. At some point, personal Amalekites show up personally in our lives in the form of lusts, appetites, habits that are in our lives, personal blind ambitions that control our attitudes and our actions, right? These, these personal Amalekites come to us. And for you and I to contend with our lusts and our habits and our controlling patterns in our lives, it's going to take a sword and it's going to take a rod and we're going to have to trust God in that moment. So I want you to think for a moment personally, is there, are there issues in your life that fall into these categories personal issues in your life that God is calling you to take up a sword against those things. And God is calling for intercession to pray for him to give victory and ability and favor in our lives. In just a moment, we're going to pray for you. We're going to take the hill on your behalf and pray for you as you take steps to wield a sword in your own life. There's family Amalekites that come. There's faith crisis that come into your home, come into your family, come into your children's lives, come into your spouse's life. There are health attacks that come. The Amalekites show up and health gets attacked in your family, in your household. There are seasons of suffering, setbacks that, that war against your faith and discourage you in such a way. You know, one of the most discouraging moments in Scripture is, is, you know, Job is, he and his family, they're under this attack, right? Well, I mean, we, we see that. There's an attacker. God is sovereign over it, but there's an attack happening here, and it's wearing him down, but it wears his wife down faster than it wears him down. You notice that in the passage, for whatever reason. So you don't get through two chapters where Job is seeking to hold on, and his wife's counsel to him is, do you still hold fast? Job, really? Curse God and die, Job. And Job discovers his wife has quit. The, the war on faith got to her first, and she's got no faith for this any longer. Job, quit. I can't do this anymore. Quit. Job amazingly in strength from the grace of God in his life. Shall we accept good from God and not evil? He's got faith to stand in that moment, but she does not have faith to stand in that moment. Listen, at some point the Amalekites got to your wife before they got to you. And you're going to have to come out with a sword. And you're going to have to come out and raise the rod on behalf of your family. And then there are corporate Amalekites, and there are church-wide Amalekites 
that come to affect the church. They come to, to bring hostility against what God is doing in the people of God. There are attitudes out there. There are philosophies. There's ways of looking at life. There are patterns that we live our lives by. There's the lack of concern for holiness and the dignity of the person of God being portrayed into this world. And it's coming against the church. And it's showing up in our lives. Those are Malachites. They're a little different than the personal ones. And they're a little different than the family ones. And they can't afford to fall off of our list of priorities. It had to do with God's mission. God is up to something. God's not just up to something in your personal life, by the way. He's not just up to something at your address where you and your family live. He's up to something through the church for the sake of his glory being seen. So, you know, great concern is some of us, we know how to raise the rod personally. As a matter of fact, most of our prayer lives are consumed with raising the rod personally. God, help me with this. I feel threatened. Oh, my gosh. Help me with this. God, help me, over, help me lose some weight. Lord, help me. Step in. I'm, I'm, I'm praying. And then maybe we step into our family's realms and take up some of those and pray for those. But how many of us step into the church and feel the responsibility that the Amalekites are at the door of the church? Raising the rod for the sake of the mission of God that takes place through the church. Wielding the sword against these ideas and practices and ways of life that are going on all around us. One last thought from Mr. Spurgeon. Let us then, brethren and sisters, each in our spheres deal hard blows at the enemy. This is a fight in which all can do something. We have each an allotted work to do. If we are the Lord's elect, let us take care that we do it. I will never have it that God created any man, especially any Christian man, to be a blank and to be a nothing. He made you for an end. Find out what that end is. Find out your niche and fill it. Listen, listen there's, there's no spectators when Amalekites show up. You're either swinging a sword or you're lifting a rod and you're actively trusting in God. So this morning, I want to I do this with us. Let the Holy Spirit find us in these three categories. One would be the call of God for, I'm going to say men, but you know, I know this can be women as well, but I'm going to aim this at the men a little bit this morning. To repent of the horrible condition of doubt and complaining. To repent. To treat it like it's horrible in the face of God for the atmosphere around my life to be one that weighs and assesses and criticizes and complains and weighs and assesses and complains and weighs and assesses and complains and stirs that up in others. God be calling us to just repent this morning of that. Listen, there may be some here this morning that the Amalekites are in your life they're there personally. There are lusts or ambitions or issues. They're there in your family. And, and God is calling you to pick up a sword and to swing it at that thing. Go to war. Joshua fought 
the Amalekites. He didn't sit down. He got up and engaged. He went to war against these things. There may be something God's calling you to do in your life. You have an issue that's setting you back. You have an issue that's pushing you back. Is God calling you to do something different in your life? In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to respond. I'm going to ask you to pick your sword up. You don't need a lot of notice here. Right? They got one day, and they had to respond immediately. But here's what I want the rest of us, if you're not going to, because I'm going to ask you to stand in just a moment. Just, just those of you who need to swing a sword. And the rest of us are going to pick the rod up for them. And we're going to begin just to intercede for them. And with this mental picture, this great installed mental picture that when the rod went up, prevailing took over began to advance. What a great thing, isn't it this morning that, that we are here physically and spiritually simultaneously in this room. We have the ability to pray, hold up a rod and invisibly advance issues of God in people's lives. There are people around you that have been retreating and retreating. This morning, could it not be that this story inspires the reality of the story in us? That you and I, we could begin to intercede for those around us and God would give them grace to prevail in whatever it is that they're facing in their lives. Ultimately, whether you got to wield a sword, whether you got to raise a rod, we've got to trust in God. God, meet us as the Amalekites come. Be with us as we do this. All right, so, Lord, open our hearts right now to more than words. God, thank you for words. Thank you for all the ways you have helped us to think, helped us to receive awareness and conviction. But, Lord, now we need things like willingness. Lord, we need faith to risk. Lord, we need an attitude that says enough. God, we need courage that says put the sword in my hand. <clears throat> and I will go out to fight. Listen, if you're here this morning and you sense that I'm facing the Amalekites, and I need to go out and fight. I want you to stand up right where you are. You don't have to come up here, but I want you to stand up right where you are. <clears throat> all right, for all of us who are, are seated... Get this image in your mind. Hand back from the battlefield. And you notice that suddenly there's these people that are backing up, being slain, being overcome. Your people, people you care about, are being pressed and retreating. And you notice that when the rod goes up, all that changes. God steps in. Mysteriously, God steps in as there is prayer and dependency lifted before God and he rushes into that moment and things become different. Okay, listen, right now, can you move towards some people that maybe God just wants you to go pray for them? You have several folks praying for people. Just begin to raise the rod for them. 
just to stand on the hill and whatever Amalekites they're facing, whatever moments that they feel like they, they're threatened with retreat, they're threatened with loss, just begin to ask for God to show up with power and favor and, and an ability to prevail. Whatever they've not been prevailing in, God, let there become prevailing. So go ahead and get moving. Hey, somebody's got to raise a rod here. Right? So I don't want anybody standing here with nobody raising a rod for them. Everybody's called to wield swords and raise rods. And so this is not, this is not a spectator moment. just a, a moment with the person that you're praying with, maybe just to, to ask them, not for details, just very generically, what area am I praying for? How am I praying for you? Just ask them that real quickly and let them give you some idea about how you can sense the Lord's leading in that area for them. Begin to pray for them. look around because I still see guys standing by themselves. Father, we know that there are a lot of details that go into each of our stories. How long suffering will last, what purpose is behind it, what you are seeking to accomplish in it, what sin is present, 
what discipline is involved, what purpose stands veiled behind a curtain that we won't get a chance to see fully. But Lord, in this story, there's a battle with Amalek. And Lord, you have summarized its outcome under the banner saying, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Lord, there is a lifted rod in this story and there is a sword being swung in this story and at the end of the day there is victory in the hands of your people. So God, you put this story here. Lord, you trap these details in this passage. And so God, this morning, we lift our voices before you for these who are standing. These who are standing in the face of Amalekites in their own life, whether they are personal, whether they're in their family, they're in their body, they're in the church. God, there are advances of the enemy confronting their lives. There are opportunities to fear and to doubt There's temptation to run. There's discouragement that leaves swords lying on the side. But God, this morning by faith, Lord, they have picked up a sword yet again. They said, God, I am here to walk into this battle, to stand with your might, to depend upon the captain of the host to go before me into this battle, to be on the field with me with victory in his power. Lord, we stand with them, Lord, believing that as our dependency is upon you, as the rod is lifted and we declare that, God, we are looking to you for victory over our enemies. God, we're looking to you to give power to overcome temptations and lies and habits that have been around way too long, lusts that have grabbed control, passions for pleasure, that have seized hearts. God, they've been around way too long. So God, here we are here, Lord, raising the rod. God, come prevail. Come send your power and prevail. God, come send the enemy backing up, Lord. Give your people steps in advance. Lord, let them wield and swing the sword and one step after another find more ground and more ground and more ground being yielded to them they can stand with the assurance that God is with me, God is for me, God fights on my behalf. God, we want to be a people who wield the sword and raise the rod. God, we know you've called us to do both. And so, Lord, this morning, our gathering here this morning, we devote ourselves to asking for your favor for those that are standing. God, they have stood in courage. Like, like I'm sure these Israelites who really didn't have a lot of experience in swinging swords went out in courage and in trust. God, these have stood this morning in courage and in trust that you will join with them. And God, we believe that on their behalf. God goes with you. Go, go, go and fight. Go and swing the sword. God goes with you. His power and his favor go with you. He can overcome and overturn, remotivate and demotivate your enemy, give you favor. In the day of battle, God, do that for 
all who are here this morning standing by faith and answering your call. And God, send us from this place with a heart aware that, Lord, this is your call for us. We wield the sword and we raise the rod and we trust in you to meet us in our day of battle. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Have a great week.